everyone. Welcome back to Calvary Chapel. Let's see. Got a lot of material to go over today. This is our second installment in a messages about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're doing this. It's Jesus' fault uh, that we're doing this because we were reading Genesis. And we read about Noah and we read about Lot and Sodom. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, and it was in the days of Lot, so it shall be. So we can anticipate that the culture that existed back in that ancient world is going to happen again. And it is happening again, happening again. And therefore, we're aware that the Lord is coming soon. Last week, we talked about the second coming in relation to Jesus and the Jews, if you remember. Jesus and the Jews. Uh, and his faithfulness to his people. Thank you, radio. Anybody needs a Bible, we have Bibles available. His faithfulness to the people because of his covenant with them. His faithfulness to the Jewish people because of his covenant with them. Today I want to talk about Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church and his faithfulness to the church because of his covenant with us. All right? So last week we spent a bit of time uh, learning from Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, who is speaking to Daniel in chapter 9. And we learned that there are 70 sets of seven years each, or 490 years. And Daniel sliced that into three portions, or Gabriel did for us. And we learned that we kind of gave us the divine timeline, the divine timeline. So we had, uh, we ended up, 69 of those 70 weeks had been fulfilled. With one week, one period of seven years, which is still future. One period of seven years, which is still future. And uh, we learned from Daniel that uh, there is a coming prince who will make a, an agreement with Israel, a peace treaty of some kind, in the future. Um, and it will be, evidently, a, a, it'll cover the seven-year period of time. And we know that because we have some date stamps we have some date stamps in the book of Revelation that tell us that, um, that mark out uh, three and a half years, half of seven, or 1260 days or 42 months. And that is revealing to us that, um, therefore, the chapter 6 through 18 in Revelation, we believe, are um, revealing to us that seven-year period of tribulation that Daniel prophesied for us. And that in the middle of that seven years, an antichrist will come. He'll break his treaty with Israel, and hell breaks loose. Open to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Just touch on a couple of verses here. I'm going to spend a little bit of time this morning just laying some groundwork and some understanding about the tribulation itself and how it's different from just general tribulation that we go through. And um, just go through a couple of terms, and then we'll get into Jesus and the church. So here in Matthew 24, 15, 
Jesus in this chapter is answering a question from his disciples, what's going to happen before you come again? And so he, he blasts off in this little sermon of his, uh, and he comes to verse 15, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Now that's a direct reference, my friends, back to 9, chapter Daniel 9, verse 27. The prince will come, he'll make a treaty. In the middle of that treaty, a seven-year period, he will desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. And it'll be an abomination. It'll be a horrible thing. All right? Jesus refers to that. But notice, he says, when you see that, Abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And then, you know, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he goes on. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. Interesting. So after this abomination, great tribulation breaks out in, in the world, particularly in Israel. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor no, nor ever shall be. So my brothers and sisters, that tells me that what's, this is future. There's been a lot of horrible things that have happened in the course of humanity, in the course of mankind's existence. But what's going to happen, Jesus just told us, it's going to be worse than anything that's ever happened or will happen. It's the granddaddy of them all. This great tribulation which follows the abomination of desolation. Okay? Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. <laughs> okay? So that is Jesus telling us about himself. He's standing on the Mount of Olives. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives and he's talking about he knows he's coming again. That's Jesus here in his first coming in his humanity and he's talking about his second coming, which is still future. Okay? So, um, great tribulation. Now, I'm going to give you a new term. The great tribulation is synonymous with the term, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Okay? The day of the Lord is uh, referred to quite a bit in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it is always a time of judgment. And it's something that God does toward men. It's God's judgment toward men. Now, he might use human instruments, at least in the Old Testament, that's often the case. But the day of the Lord is a time of judgment from God on rebellious man. Now, if you're note takers, let me just reference a few Old Testament passages about the day of the Lord. And I'll leave it to you to look them up. But you can find the day of the Lord referred to in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 13, and chapter 34. 
You'll see the day of the Lord in Joel 1, 2, and 3, in all three of those chapters. In fact, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, 28 to 30, on the day of Pentecost. Because everybody's like, those guys are drunk, they're speaking in tongues. He goes, no, no, this that you're hearing is that, which was prophesied by Joel, and that the Spirit will be poured out, and they'll speak in tongues, and your old man will have visions, whoever old men are, and your young men will have dreams, and he talks about that. And then he goes on, and he says, And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Peter on the day of Pentecost. So he preaches the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. That's us. But he also slides right over, and he refers to the end of time. Right? The calamities that will come. So, Old Testament references to the day of the Lord. Isaiah 2, 13, 34. Joel chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Amos chapter 5. Obadiah. Zephaniah chapter 1. Remember Malachi chapter 4, the closing verses of Malachi? Malachi prophesies. What's he say exactly? That uh, Elijah will come. Right? Here it is. Remember, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Okay? So I just want to fix that in your mind, brothers and sisters. The day of the Lord is always associated with darkness and evil and bad and judgment and the lights go out. The sun is darkened and the moon and the stars. It's a horrible time. It's a time of judgment. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> right? So in a nutshell, the Great Tribulation is the same thing as the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord references in the New Testament. It is referred to in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 10, Paul talks about the Day of the Lord. And he speaks of it in the same way as they do prophets do in the Old Testament. He talks about the day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 through 12. He specifically says in both cases, the day of the Lord. And in chapter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he refers to the day of the Lord in the context of an antichrist going into the temple and setting himself there and saying, I'm God. It's the abomination of desolation. Also, 2 Peter chapter 3. Okay, so in a nutshell, the day of the Lord, or the great tribulation, is the wrath of God on the unbelieving world. It's the wrath of God on the other unbelieving world. By the way, friends, I got to come down here, sorry. By the way, as you read Revelation, take note where everything starts the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. As the seals are pulled away, as the trumpets are blown, as the bowls are poured out, it all starts in heaven and comes to earth. It is God's judgment on the unbelieving world. He's initiating it. Okay? It's the day of the Lord, which isn't really a day, it's a period of time. It's Daniel's 70th week. 
in the middle of that week, it amps up big time and culminates in the Lord's second coming that he talked about in Matthew 24, 29. So the, the culmination of the day of the Lord is Jesus coming again. The day of the Lord, in summary, and I'm going to use words that all start with or have an R sound, okay? Uh, in summary, the day of the Lord, or the great tribulation, is the wrath of God, the wrath of God on the unbelieving world. And God uses that to regather his people, to regather his people Israel into faith in him. And he uses this period of tribulation, seven years, to lead people to repentance and faith. That's why we see throughout the book of Revelation, believers, they come to faith in Christ. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They loved not their lives unto death, Revelation 12, 11. So in summary, the day of the Lord, it's the wrath of God on the unbelieving world. It's the regathering of Israel unto himself in faith. It it's, it's also covers all men and to lead them to repentance and faith and culminates in the return of Jesus. Okay? Wrath, regathering, repentance, return. There. Got that out of the way. This is very, very, very different from the day of Christ, which is our hope. All right? So the day of Christ is referred to specifically by Paul five different times in the New Testament. And it's very, very different. It's hopeful, it's beautiful, it's loving, it's, it's good, it's not judgment. It's, it's a reuniting with our Savior. In fact, the day of Christ, I'll use our words again, because it just helps me remember, it's the return of our Savior, it's the raising of the saints, and it's reward for service. It's the return of the Savior for his church. It's the raising of the saints, dead or alive. And it's reward for our service. And I might add, it's rejoicing forevermore. Because so shall we ever be with the Lord. It is very, very different. It's opposite. Okay? Now let me just say a word about tribulation. Because right now you might be going, well, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> that famous verse, John 16, 33, uh, Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. How does he say it? In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's what it is. John 16, 33. All right. Jesus also said in John 15, the famous I am the vine chapter, it takes a a sharp left turn. We go through all the, the beauty of being abiding in the vine and having the nourishment and the resources of Jesus filling our lives and developing fruit in, in our lives. And then in verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, 
You know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He goes on in chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you, now listen to this. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you, oh my goodness, that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you, remember, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. John 16, 1 through 4. And then he closes up some of the last words he ever said to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. One of the last things he said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. There is a stark difference, brothers and sisters. And you might say I'm pulling hairs on this or, or slicing this thin, but I'm not at all. The great tribulation is future. And it really kicks into gear once a peace treaty is signed with Israel, and especially when the Antichrist breaks that vow and does the abomination of desolation. Jesus taught us that. So what's the difference? The difference, as I've told you, is that it's judgment coming from God on the unbelieving world. The tribulation we go through that is referred to here in John 15 and 16, it's from men against the church and the devil. It's from men against, it's not God coming after us and judging us. No, a father chastens his son, we know that. But in the context of, of tribulation, it's a very different thing. We all go through tribulation in the church. The church has always gone through times of persecution and martyrdom. But that's at the hands of evil men. It's not God doing it. You with me? All right. Just want to make sure you're clear on what the tribulation is and what it isn't. <laughs> All right. The day of Christ. It's a very beautiful thing. I just want to tell you right up front that I want to frame our understanding of the day of Christ as a bridegroom coming after his woman because <laughs> he loves her and he's made a covenant with her and he and our God is going to keep that vow that promise that covenant that he's made that we've entered into by faith so the day of the Christ or the day of Christ I'm going to look at it with you this morning in three ways what exactly is it when does it happen? And I'm not going to make a prediction. And what do we do while we wait? So what is the day of Christ? When does it happen? And while we wait. So, again, in summary, I'll tell you up front, the day of Christ, it's the return of our bridegroom for his church. It's the raising of the saints dead or alive, into reunion with our Savior 
and reward for our service and rejoicing forevermore. Okay? You got those R words down? It's return, raising, reunion, reward, and rejoice. It's all a good thing. So some of the verses in the New Testament that refer to the day of Christ. Oh, yes, I have a couple of uh, disclaimers. <laughs> I'm going to, I want to say right up front. All right, because what I've learned uh, in my brief time as a pastor and as a, a Christian is that there might be uh, some pretty good differences of opinion, particularly uh, related to the rapture, the raising of the church, of the saints, and the timing of it. Usually the disagreement comes about when. When does it happen? When does the church get taken up by our bridegroom, raised, dead or alive? When does that happen? And there can often be disagreement on that. Usually... Um, it has to do with, does it happen before the Great Tribulation, the seven-year period, or after? All right? So let me say this to you. We might disagree on the timing. One or both of us could be wrong on this issue. But it will never jeopardize your standing with Christ. Okay? In other words... It's a secondary issue. So don't get upset and never come back here if what I say to you, you don't agree with. And I found that people have some pretty strong opinions on this issue. It's very different, isn't it? From if I have a different uh, argument or, or an opinion about the divinity of Jesus Christ. And there's millions of people in the world today that will argue with me or you that he's not God, and I'll show him from the scriptures, and they'll show me from the scriptures, and I'll show him he is God. That's a very different issue. Because only one of us can be right. And the one that's wrong is going to hell. This is not that, okay? So let's be mature and love one another. If we don't agree... I just want to make another statement about the subject of the last days, or the big theological word is eschatology, study of the last days. Let me just make a statement or two about that. It is a massive subject because it starts in Genesis 3.15 and goes all the way to the end of the book in Revelation. It requires to get a grasp of what happens in the last days, it requires a lot of Bible study, a lot of reading, a lot of study and reading, lots of thought, analysis, prayer, rereading and rereading and rereading and patience and more thought and confusion. <laughs> Most people don't make the effort. And I'm honest with you, I'm not sure I would if I, God hadn't called me to feed you and to tend you and to help you understand the last days. But I will tell you this, and you know this to be true. There is always rich blessing and much fruit that comes from reading the Bible 
and rereading and rereading and thought and prayer and analysis and conversation. There's always much blessing that comes out of it. And it's a long, hard slog. And you might take years, actually, to begin to build uh, some convictions about what the Word actually does say. So be patient, my friends. Don't get discouraged. You might feel ignorant, discouraged, or frustrated. But uh, there is blessing that comes. In fact, pop quiz. Okay? I love pop quizzes. So anybody can answer. What's the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing for reading it? Anybody? Amen. Nathan's got it. The book of Revelation. Opening chapter in the prelude to the book. Blessed are those who read, hear, and keep those things that are written. It's the only book that speaks of blessing. By the way, there's seven blessings in the book of Revelation. By the way, the number seven is used more times in the book of Revelation than the whole rest of the New Testament combined. Well, that makes sense because the book of Rev 7 is the number of completion. And it's the book of Revelation, the consummation of all things. No wonder the number seven is there so prominently. And that there's seven blessings that span through the whole book. So read and read carefully. So the day of Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. I'll just point out a couple of verses to you. We'll understand what it is. What it is. That's what I'm talking about right now. What it is, when it happens, and while we wait. So what is the day of Christ? Well, I've told you. It's the rising of the saints to meet the reunion with their Savior. Philippians 1 verse 6. Paul here explicitly mentions the day of Christ. Uh, verse 6, we know this verse, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a threat? Does that sound judging? Does that sound fearful? No, it's a promise. It's Jesus who's working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And he's going to do that until the end. Right? Verse 10. He mentions the day of Christ in verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Turn to chapter 2 in Philippians. I chose this book because three of the five explicit references are here in Philippians. Uh, chapter 2, verse 16, Philippians, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Okay? There's other scripture references, uh, 1 Corinthians verses 1, 7, and 8, and 2 Corinthians 1, 14. Those are the five verses where Paul explicitly states the day of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, 2 Corinthians 1, 14. But there's other verses that don't actually talk about the day of Christ explicitly, but like here we are, Philippians. Look at chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also, Philippians 3, 20, hopefully you're looking at it, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is in heaven, Paul is telling us. And we're waiting for him with careful attention, is what he would say there, eagerly. Right? 
who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Let me give you a couple more verses and I'll just read them to you. But famously, Paul, in his last letter, right, Second uh, Timothy 4, he says this in verses 6 through 8, the time of my departure has come. That is some of the most beautiful words. The time of my departure has come. I love that. <laughs> Just, anyway. I have, thought, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Paul's looking forward to reward. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, for Paul, he knew that he was a short time before he dies. He said, the time of my departure. He's at the end of his life. He's back in Rome. He's in prison. And he knows that the judgment's already been made, that he's not going to live. And so as he's looking at his end, he's thinking about, when I die, I'm going into the presence of the Lord. Did you know that? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's Paul. He's like, but when I get there, my Savior is going to meet me and he's going to reward me for my faithful service. I've kept the faith. I've fought the good fight. He went through tribulation. And he kept the faith. Paul wrote to Timothy, or Titus rather, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 14. I'll show you another verse, or two or three. John 14. And this is where um, you kind of start to develop the idea that Jesus is our bridegroom and he's coming for his bride. Right? Because that's kind of the, the, the cultural, the context in which he's speaking here in John 14, verses 1 through 3. Very famous verses, right? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, how does he say it here? Are many mansions or many dwelling places. If it were not so, wouldn't I have told you? But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. All right? So it's just take it for the simple understanding that what Jesus has said here, right? I'm going to heaven. Now he's speaking in advance of his crucifixion. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and take you to myself. You know, guys, that when the, Gabriel, or when the angel talked to Joseph, Joseph caught wind that his fiancée was pregnant, Mary. You know the story. You all know the story? I hope so. <laughs> right? Matthew 1. He's like, oh, that sucks. My wife had an affair. I guess I got to divorce her. And he was actually contemplating, how am I going to do that? I don't want to make a big example of her. 
I really kind of love her still. This is a very sad betrayal. So he's trying to figure out how can I do this in a right way. And an angel, he has a vision. And in the vision, an angel said, now listen to this, Joseph, do not fear to take. It's exactly the same word that Jesus used of himself. I'm going to heaven. I will come again and take you to myself. The angel said to Joseph, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph woke from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. I love that. That's very, very, that puts the whole context of the day of Christ is the love of God in Jesus Christ planted in my heart by his Holy Spirit. He's coming to take me back to his place where we'll be with the Lord forever. That's just so beautiful. Just so step back for a moment and think about this. We have a virgin who has Jesus in her, Mary. And her husband comes and takes her back to his place that he's been preparing for her. That's the gospel. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ for the church, right there, with Matthew in Matthew 1 between Joseph and Mary. A virgin who has Jesus in her, waiting for her husband, who comes and takes her back to his place, and they live together. That's what Jesus is referring to. It's the same sort of language here in chapter 14 of John. Now look, ladies, you all know that men are jerks sometimes. So they might put a ring on your finger, and they're like, we're going to get married someday, girl. And you agree, and all is good, you're engaged. But the reality is, he's sinful. And he may not be faithful. And he may not follow through on his deal. I know. <laughs> Some of the looks on the faces. Okay? It just sometimes, unfortunately, happens. It's heartbreaking. Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, the reason I'm telling you that, he takes that option off the table. You believe in God? He's perfect. He can't lie. I'm telling you that I'm God. And if I tell you I'm coming, I'm coming. And you can go to the bank on it. So think about the Lord in the day of Christ and the context. This is what I want you to think about the Lord, the day of Christ, Jesus in the church in the context of a bridegroom. Remember Matthew 22, the Lord told a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Jesus is telling that, speaking of himself. In fact, John's disciples came and said, hey, how come you never fast and your disciples don't fast? And he goes, can the bride, can the people, friends of the bridegroom, friends of the, he referred to himself as a bridegroom. John the Baptist referred to him as a bridegroom. Jesus is telling the parable about God who made a marriage, for, a marriage for his son. Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Five wise, five were foolish. You know the story, I hope. Matthew 25, it says, As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, go out and meet him. Right? That's Jesus telling the story. 
Five wise, five foolish, virgins. You know, the whole point of that little parable, by the way, is that the wise, the wise virgins had a relationship with Jesus. They knew him. And they knew that he was coming and they were ready. That's the main point of that little parable. They were ready. They left home and they were prepared. And then when the Lord came, it told us that the bridegroom arrived and the other foolish versions, they weren't prepared. And so when the Lord came, they had to go and do a bunch of things and they came back and they knocked on the door and they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he said, I didn't know you. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. Five people all looked alike, all had knowledge of his coming. Five of them had no relationship with him. And I think there's a number of people in the church, maybe in our church this morning, that have knowledge of his coming, have knowledge of who he is, but they don't know him. And the Lord said it, I don't know you. Lord, Lord. They even knew what to call him. They knew who he was, but no relationship. So repent and believe in the Lord, and you will be saved, and you will know him, because he will give you his Holy Spirit, which I think of as type of an engagement ring. It's the key, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, as Paul would teach us, that he's coming again until the day of our redemption. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, to 2 Corinthians 11.3. Some of the best known text, and you can turn now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. One Thessalonians 4. Hey, I was just tap that down a degree, if you would, please. Get some air moving. 1 Thessalonians 4, and this is really the text that talks about the return of the Lord and the raising of the saints. We sometimes call it the rapture. You ever heard that term? Okay, it's not in the Bible. You'll never find the word rapture in the Bible. You won't find the word trinity in the Bible. Both are true. Rapture comes from the Latin. Why Latin? Because Constantine in 4th century declared Christianity the state religion. Well, guess what? All the Latin speakers got busy translating the Bible into Latin. And so we come today with... Sometimes we use words that have a Latin origin. Rapture is one of them. First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. What's that mean, anybody? What's fallen asleep mean? Say again. Died, right? Why would Paul say fallen asleep? Because it's a temporary thing. That's what Jesus said of Lazarus. Well, he's sleeping. Disciples are like, well, that's good. He's sick. He goes, no, no. I mean, he's dead. But it's a temporary thing because I'm going to raise him up. It's a beautiful word. So Paul says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant. There's some confusion about have the saints who have died already, have they missed the coming of the Lord? The day of Christ, have they missed it? They died. Paul's correcting some thinking here. 
He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Right? So that's the bottom line. <laughs> then he says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul's not making this up. He's telling us, I've been in divinely inspired. This is the word of the Lord. That's like an Old Testament prophet. I say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain when the Lord comes shall be caught up. And that's the word we get rapture from. Shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So there you go, friends. That's the day of Christ, right? It's the raising of the saints, reunion with the Savior. And from 2 Timothy, from Paul, he said there's reward for our service and rejoicing forevermore. Amen. Uh, in case you're interested, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52 also talks about the rapture. Happens in a twinkling of an eye. So that's the verse there. Okay. So that's the day of Christ. I wanna, wanted to frame that to you in the context of a bridegroom with his bride. Right? Just like Joseph going and taking Mary unto himself because she had Jesus in her. So when will this happen? Ah, here we go. <laughs> okay, here we go. Now we're going to get into it. So when is this going to happen? Before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation? So I'll just tell you right now, I'm a pre-tribulation guy. All right? I'm a pre-trib guy. I believe that the Lord will come for his church before the seven-year period of tribulation begins. That's, what, that's my conviction. I'm sticking to it. Someday you'll come around to my way of thinking. <laughs> if you think otherwise, that's cool. It really is. And I have good fellowship with brothers who think otherwise. But let me tell you why. As I said to you in the beginning, Jesus in the church is based on his faithfulness to his covenant. And we know from everything I've said so far that the day of the Lord is the wrath of God poured out in judgment on the unbelieving world. It's the wrath of God poured out on, in judgment on the unbelieving world and regathers Israel and so on and so on, right? That's what we know for sure. Which is why I believe that Probably a little unfair here, right? Because I got the pulpit, and so I'm going to preach my <laughs> belief to you. But I'll give you the verses. That's why I believe that because of the covenant, because of what was accomplished on the cross, because of propitiation, because God poured out his wrath 
on Jesus. He judged our sin in him. And Jesus appeased his wrath. And he expiated my guilt and shame. There's top side and bottom side to that, what happened on the cross. That's why that word propitiation is so powerful. Because it's in the context of a, a just God bringing his holy wrath against man's rebellion, my rebellion. Jesus accomplished that. Is there a question? Amen. John 19.30, it is finished. It is finished. Perfect passive. Something in the action in the past, continuous result, never needs to be repeated again. Perfect passive. It is finished. Jesus said it. Tetelestai. Tetelestai, if you know your Greek. The repetition in the beginning tells us it's a perfect tense. Past action, continued result, never needs to be repeated again. And that becomes mine. That's a, that's a foundational truth I hold on to. Because of Jesus, my Savior, my Bridegroom, who loves me so much he laid down his life for me, like a good husband for his bride. So go with me to Romans chapter 5. Hey, Oz, hit that down another notch. <laughs> Romans 5 verse 1. Romans 5 verse 1. I'm, I'm answering the question in my typical long-winded way. When will we be raptured? So let me restate my position which I believe comes from the scripture, which I've already stated to you. Will we be raptured before the wrath of God is poured out on the world? Or will we go through the tribulation and experience his divine judgment on his church? That doesn't make theological sense. Romans chapter 5 Verse 1, therefore, brethren, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is in reply, that is the answer to Paul as he began to preach the gospel. He opened in verse one, chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, mankind. And he goes through the next several chapters explaining why that is true. But he comes to chapter 5, and those who have believed, he says, you now have peace with God. I do not live in fear that I will ever stand before the Lord with my salvation in the balance. It's because of what Jesus has done for me and he's imputed his righteousness into me, guarantee me, as Eric said in worship, oh, the benefit of righteousness. Furthermore, Paul would say in chapter, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured in, out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit is the engagement ring. He himself is the guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that we're, the Lord's going to come back. 
Joseph went to Mary's house. An agreement was made. He left her with some gifts. He went back to his home. It's a true story. Joseph went back to his home and put an addition on his dad's home, preparing a place for his future wife. But you read it in Matthew, it says they're already married. In fact, it took a legal procedure to break the bond, divorce, even though they weren't living together yet. It's exactly where we're at, church. We are the virgin bride with Jesus living in us waiting for him to come back. And how do I know that? Because he poured his love, the love of the bridegroom poured into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. You read some of the texts of Hebrews and, and what we read in Philippians, it says, eagerly waiting. Let's be real. I don't eagerly wait. I got a lot, we all have a lot of things on our plate. I'm not waking up every morning going, oh Lord, butterflies in my stomach right? Married a lot of people. You just, you know, the men, you're in the back room with the men and they're shaking. It's like, I'm about to get married. Yeah. <laughs> right? And finally that day comes. The bride, you know, their voice is quivering as they're exchanging their vows. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. I'm not living like that. I don't know about you. But I'll tell you what, his love his love for me, for you, is in my heart. And so that changes. I may not have the butterflies. I didn't wake up this morning and go, yeah, you'll probably be here about 3 o'clock this afternoon. No, it's because his love's in me. And I know he's alive. He spoke to me this morning. We had a conversation, a beautiful one. Look at Romans 5, verse 10. Sorry, verse 9. Now, Paul's strength, he's not done. Paul puts his foot on the gas here, and he doesn't let up. Romans 5, verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. You see that, brothers, sisters? It's not, we're saved out of wrath. What wrath is he talking about? He's talking about the future wrath to come. We're saved from the wrath to come. The tribulation, the day of the Lord, we're saved from it. Not out of it, not after it. We're saved from it because of what the bridegroom has done. I'm just hammering my point here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, Paul says this. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So in answering the question, when does the day of Christ happen? I'm suggesting to you that it happens before the tribulation. Let me make two more very vital points. Go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. So I'm just strengthening the scriptural perspective that the timing of the raising of the saints into reunion and reward happens before the tribulation. Revelation 6, beginning in verse 16. No, verse 15. Revelation 6, 15. Hopefully you're looking at this. We're in Revelation. This is the 
This is, the seals have been opened. The day of the Lord has begun. The beginning of the seven years has begun. And it tells us in verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, God, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath, or his wrath, has come. And who is able to stand? That's when the tribulation starts. People, did you notice that, friends? They said, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They didn't say from the wrath of Jesus. They said from, they used the, the specific term, from the Lamb. In other words, they understand that Jesus is a substitutionary atonement. And they're refusing it. The point is, they are recognized, these unbelieving people, as judgment begins to happen, cosmic things in the universe, and crazy stuff, like never has happened or will ever happen again, Jesus told us. And when it happens, they're like, it's the wrath. Now that's people who are in it. But I'm saying that my covenant or the covenant that I walked into when the Holy Spirit led me to faith, and humility and repentance, I'm saved from wrath, I'm saved from wrath, from this. I ain't done. I want to strengthen this argument. Remember Genesis when the angels went into Sodom? That was just a few weeks ago. And they went in there to get Lot out of there. Do you remember? Now before that happened, Abraham was praying to the Lord. And Abraham said to the Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Abraham knew that judgment, divine judgment, Fire from heaven, hell came from heaven. And it went to Sodom. And Abraham's like, you're going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God dispatches the angels. They go into Sodom. They grab a hold of Lot. And they're like, you've got to get out of here, man. Genesis 19.22. And they said, we can do nothing until you leave. We are not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. And Lot's like, well, uh, <laughs> I got all my stuff. Where's my phone? I need my phone. <laughs> I want to take a video. <laughs> Selfie before I leave <laughs> Sodom. <laughs> Point five video, right? All of this. <laughs> and Lot's like, send me to Zoar. Do you guys remember that? It was of the five little cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, and Zoar, Zeboim, and Adma, and Zoar. Now check this out. And the angel's like, oh, whatever. Go to Zoar then. So Lot goes to Zoar. Do you know what? They didn't destroy Zoar 
because the righteous was living in it. They took down the other four cities, but when that righteous man walked into that unrighteous place, the judgment did not fall on it because God doesn't destroy the wicked with the righteous. And I know that because I stumbled upon a verse in Deuteronomy 34. Moses is standing on a hill and God's given him a vision of the promised land that he's never going to live in. And he was able to span the whole land from north to south. And it says when he was looking at the south, he saw Zoar. It was still standing hundreds and hundreds of years later because a righteous man went into that place. God doesn't do that. Praise the Lord. Now right now you might be going, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would God take his salt and light out of the earth when the need for salt and light is the greatest? I understand that argument. But maybe our being taken, taken away is going to have a huge witness in and of itself. Just like Lot's witness when all the wicked men got up in the morning and went to his house and guess what? The door is just swinging, shades are flowing and, and he's gone. It's like, where'd he go? God took him. Hmm. He told us this was going to happen. True story. Will it be true again? Yes. So, there you go. So what do we do while we wait? Well, that's an easy one, as you know. First of all, become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, give your life to Christ. Don't be a foolish virgin. Look, just because you sit here in church and you identify with everybody who's like, yeah, I'm in church. I'm a Christian. I eat donuts. I'm a cop. I can say that. My friend Mike Suey is a cop. He's like, you can say that. It's okay. <laughs> So what do we do? Well, let me just say three things. What we do while we wait. Stay together. Stay together. I'm preaching to the church. I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. That's the good thing. Hebrews 10.25 don't neglect the meeting together, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stay together. Love one another. Stay together, friends. Students, you're going to leave here someday. Some of you will graduate. Find a church and stay there and get in fellowship. We need each other. That's number one. Number two, you know this is coming because <laughs> read your Bible. Now, as a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a reading assignment. Read Matthew 24. And as you start reading, I want you to notice how many times does Jesus say, don't be deceived? I want you to read that. In the context of what's going to happen before I come again, 
I want you to read it. And I want you to read for yourself how many times he says, don't, he says it more than twice. I'll give you a hint. Don't be deceived. How will you not be deceived? By reading the truth and obeying it. Children, obey your parents. Because that's what the Bible says. I got to say that. I got kids and parents here. Stay together, read your Bible, and obey, and you won't be deceived. Because you know what? Signs and wonders are going to happen as the last days unfold. There are going to be men who are going to rise up and they say, I'm the, Christ, I'm the one you're all looking for. And that makes sense because all hell will break loose on earth and everybody, everybody's going to be like, we need help. We need a leader. We need somebody that can get control of this situation. And people will rise up and they'll say, I'm the Christ. And they'll have prophets and they'll do signs and wonders. And everybody will go, that's him. Jesus said, don't believe it. Your redemption comes from above, not from down here. Salvation comes when I come back. But you might get, you might get deceived because I got, the Lord said even the very elect might get deceived. It's going to be very powerful and persuasive. Stay together, read your Bible, tell others about the bridegroom. That's simple. Just tell others. <laughs> Have a conversation last night with a very dear friend. And I could tell. There was just something in the tone of their voice. There was just so much, just a heavenly kind of a peace had come over this person. You know what it was? They had just finished sharing the gospel with an Uber driver. <laughs> There's just something beautiful about telling others about Jesus. And the highlight of the story was there's forgiveness, man. That's what they said. There's forgiveness. Isn't that a good thing? And the driver's like, yeah, that's a good thing. I could use that. Stay together. Read your Bible. Tell others. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the beauty of the Word of God. Thank you, Lord. I thank you for giving the church ears to hear, keeping them attentive to receive a lot of truth this morning, a lot of words. Lord, I pray we'll all be like those Bereans who said, okay, I hear you, and then they'd go study for themselves to see if what was true is true. So, Pray you'd bless and strengthen your church. Fill us, Lord. Use us. We pray in your name. Amen. 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 God bless you.